You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Joanne Ray, a teacher librarian, author, and researcher. Jo is also a Durug community member. Durug country covers the majority of Sydney, Australia. In this episode, we explore Jo's Australian Indigenous identity, her research approach and methodologies, and her family storying as woven into Sydney's Durug and colonial heritages. Jo's storying is the basis of her recent doctoral thesis, Country Tracking Voices, Durug Women's Perspectives on Presences, Places and Practices, that explores the voices and perspectives of seven Durug sisters. This research led to the development of a Macquarie University Indigenous Studies Unit, which sheds light on the places and practices that characterise the local area and its original inhabitants. In our conversation, we explore the profound significance of Goanna walking across country, a motif representing the third cultural way, an approach and process required when walking between Aboriginal and academic presences, places and practices. Jo also shares her thoughts on the importance of sustainable practices in caring for country, ancestors and the Durug community. In our time on country, Jo and I are met by various other-than-human presences in the form of numerous and enthusiastic birds. Jo crystallises and highlights Durug custodians' resilience, renewal and continuity when country is the colonised cosmopolitan city of Sydney. Here's my conversation with Joanne Ray. So here we are, I believe this is Brown's Waterhole or Terry's Creek as well. So Joe, could you tell us a little bit more about where we are and who you are? Yes, certainly. Waramai, Miniga. Welcome everyone. And as we as I say this, our resident other than humans, the galahs, the bellbirds, the parakeets, they're all welcoming us here in this amazing place called Brown's Waterhole. So who am I? Joanne Ray in this lifetime and um, I have a diverse um, life journey. Uh, I grew up on Walla Madigal country and Walla Madigal country is the place and the people of the black snapper fish, the Wallamai. And here we are today in Walla Madigal country and I wish to pay my respects and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging and recognise that the old ones in whatever form, whether they be cockatoos or galahs or uh, casserina trees, they always have been caring for country and they always will be caring for country. And learning the journey that I've been on um, in my recent years through studying and doing a, a doctorate um, <clears throat> didn't come about from out of nowhere. It came, it came about as a direct um, continuity from childhood to where I'm at today. I grew up on Wallamadigal country in a very suburban white space and um, I didn't have any idea of a Darug heritage um, and but I was aware of some silences and those silences pertain to my mother's family and there were no details as to where we came from uh, what our family heritage was or anything like this 
there was a vague story of being French at some point and Scottish at some point, but um, there was no details whatsoever. So, but I always knew that we'd been in, our family had been in Australia for forever. That was the way it was expressed. So it wasn't until um, probably in the early 2000s that this notion of um, my identity and being Australian and what that meant started to take shape because um, I was living overseas with my husband and as an expat I was very very homesick and what was all that about because nobody else seemed to be who was a living an expat life seemed to be the same <clears throat> so questions started to be asked and um, in my mind and I'd been away probably six years and I felt it was time that I came home the children had been educated bilingually French English we were living in Switzerland and um, in the in Geneva so so up until that point you mm. did, you were kind of born in Sydney or you yes. know grew, grew up in Sydney yes. and you'd had a whole kind of life mm. as such so you kind of um well how many can I ask how many years had passed when you were overseas in, oh, in Switzerland I was in my um, late 40s so a big chunk of one's life had and, been here well I'd always, if, I, if I've lived in Australia, I've lived in Sydney. Yeah. And between, you know, the Hunters Hill, Baronia Park area, which is Wallamat, part of Wallamadigal country, or across the Lane Cove River, which is where we are today on the edge of at Brown's Waterhole, on the other side of Lane Cove River in the northern um, uh, North Shore, and lower North Shore area. So this has always been my country here in Australia. But when we came back, it was um, uh, a time of change. And um, after my husband's death, it came about that I started to investigate what it was that was making me feel I needed to reconnect um, deeply, more deeply with my origins than had been the case. So that the questioning began and that was when the journey started and it was Kevin Rudd's um, speech saying sorry to um, Aboriginal people for the stolen generations and all the harm that had happened over the colonial period and I was just uh, an emotional bawling mess. And I'm going, well, where's that coming from? Where's so, your emotions coming from? Well, yeah, yeah. in, the, in that response. I was so disturbed and upset that this kind of um, awful history. So I had done um, uh, teaching, teacher librarian, arts history, Australian history, um, undergraduate years here at Macquarie. And, um, I, I had felt that as an undergraduate doing Australian history, I should have known about this stuff. Why was this stuff of Aboriginal storying on, on, never been um, brought into my education at any point? So as a child, my education had been just a white education where all the, real, all the Aboriginals had gone away from here and had left or been killed off or they just didn't exist here and Aboriginal people lived out in central desert kind of areas you know remote. Yeah, that's the general kind of image yeah and and when <clears throat> I started to travel my journey as to my Aboriginal identity um, I it started in this questioning of not knowing were, were what these? this problem the the what Aboriginal business was all about. Was that some of the gaps that you'd mentioned earlier? Yeah, the silences had been through my grandmother and my mother was, there was no story. And it was only when my grandmother was 91 and I said to her, so Nana, um, tell me about your childhood. And it, because she never talked about her childhood ever. 
and and she said oh oh well you've got to go to Patterson which is near Maitland um, if you want to know anything about that so given my um, uh, teacher librarian background. Yeah, so very handy yeah, skills. Exactly. In that I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go up to Patterson and I'll check it out and I'll contact the library and I'll see what they have to say about. I knew her surname, her maiden name, and so I went to the librarian, the local studies librarian. And at that point, I had started to think, well, you know, what's all this silence is about? And I had memories of my mother as a young woman when I was really little, and she'd come home from the hairdressers with her um, blue hairdo, as they did in the day. And, um, and one day she came in and, and she had had it a, a tight perm. And I went, oh my God, Mum, you look like an Aboriginal. Oh. Well, Mum went to bed for two days over that. Oh, wow. And I was in deep trouble for even <laughs> mentioning it. And, and so that's, you know, you go past these things as children. But later on, you go back, well, why did she get so upset? What's all that about, you know? It's um, interesting you're so attuned to the emotional state, or, you know. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, that must be a thing that's you know well if you go to bed over something mm. you know it's, it's got to be a thing yes. mm. <laughs> so and then of course you know other things like pictures of me as a child and I had really brown skin and um and blonde hair and I never took paid any attention to that as I was growing up but in later years I saw pictures of Aboriginal children with the same types of features and I went oh my goodness that looks like me when I was a child so these tiny little jigsaw pieces started to accumulate as I was going through this process so by the time I got to the librarian and um, <clears throat> and I just said at that point well I know my great-grandmother is buried here I said do you know if there's any Aboriginal heritage in the family and she said no I don't but I know who does and so it, that was the real turning uh, moment because she put me in touch she got permission and put me in touch with the woman who turned out to be my grandmother's first cousin's widow and she her name was Faye and she knew the family heritage from Patterson and so when I had the conversation with Faye the first time um, I had it in the back of my mind I would ask if there was this Aboriginal heritage and I didn't even need to ask the question she came out with the information herself she said oh you know Sarah Charlotte who was my great-grandmother you know she was Aboriginal don't you and I went, well, no, but I suspected something. And she said, yep. And as was the terminology used back in the day, yep. And she was as black as the ace of space. <laughs> so, oh, right, okay. <laughs> so immediately I knew that my grandmother, who had been raised by her grandmother, Sarah, um, had known, had known that there was this Aboriginal and not later on I found out other things, but had this Aboriginal connection to Darug from the Windsor area. <clears throat> so that was like life-changing in the sense of, well, what do I do with this information? And, and I think in that sense, living overseas for seven years, as I had done as an expat, really helped to actually engage with that space because um, it had prepared me. I was prepared and I had done my masters in third cultures, which is the, not the host culture and not the family culture, but the culture that grows in between um, perhaps the people, the country you're living in and your own family sense of belonging to place and Australia. So we were in France, 
and we had an Australian identity, except for Daniel, of course, he was Swiss. But um, the children went to international schools and they were mixing with um, other children from all over the world, you know. And in that zone is where third cultures grow. So I had done my masters in this for third culture kids and school libraries and things like this. So when I heard this, not had this knowledge that there was this Aboriginal aspect to my identity, it was like, oh, okay, um, what does that mean? And so I was in this place of third culture between Australian, what I knew about my identity to that point, the experience of living outside my language that had happened in Europe, and then this new space of, well, what does that all mean to be Aboriginal? What, what is that? So that started me on that journey, which um, having finished my masters, I sort of, and then life just took over because I was in the hairdressers. Hairdressers seem to have a, <laughs> yes. a motif, <laughs> all of their own, you know. <laughs> and so I was in the hairdressers, as one does, you know, and I was chat, chat, chatting, as one does, to the hairdresser. And I was telling her, oh, I discovered this Aboriginal heritage, you know. And she said, oh, that's interesting. One of my clients does um, work out in remote areas um, teaching English and um, uh, to Aboriginal people, you know. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And she said, yeah, so do you want to meet her? And I went, oh, yeah, why not, you know. So I think I had an English history background, so, yeah, English can do that so anyway I met um, the woman who had founded this organization to bring um, both languages of the Aboriginal people and English together and we started to do children's dictionaries so I ended up working on this um, program and went up to Groot Island and to Palm Island Groot Island is in the Gulf of Carpentaria and um, off the coast of Northern Territory there. And then Palm Island, of course, um, is off the coast of Queensland. So um, both of those experiences began my journey of what is Aboriginal business all about. Finally, um, I, uh, after about 18 months of this, I went, well, I actually want to know about my own people, the Dari people. And that began the journey with the doctorate taking place. And I met community and met um, the people. So that was the start of a new part of my journey. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So it seems as though you've been on quite a journey as our as our ancestors are um, making it's quite a lot of noise. Exactly. Surrounded by, by sulphur-crested cockatoos and other bird life here. Yep, so, and rosellas. There's a whole stack of rosellas. And look at the, up there, there's this one just at her nest. Um, well, I can see it, but our listeners won't be able to. All right. So, so, so a lot of your journey has involved academia mm. my adult journey has involved academia so and it's involved Macquarie University a lot and um, so I did my undergraduate in um, as a, a BA dip ed which was how you did it back in the day and um, and then that involved English history but it also involved teacher librarianship which came out of the what was called the College of Advanced Education. So while it was badged at Macquarie, physically the learning took place over at Linfield yep. and um, what was then called the College of Advanced Education. I know those, those buildings are quite good examples of brutalist architecture. Well, 
perhaps the learning was pretty... <laughs> <laughs> pretty brutal? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I survived, so it couldn't be too bad. But, um, so but it was radical in the sense that um, uh, Nolene Brown... Huh, another Brown. Nolene Brown was the... Um, no, sorry, Nolene Hall. Um, was really radical in getting librarians to be positioned within schools and it was it was new and so schools were having libraries built not just as a little cupboard in the you know box in the cupboard but a whole library was instituted into school architecture and a teacher librarian it had been found that it wasn't enough to just have a librarian in there because the politics of the place meant that teachers saw themselves as uh, superior to librarians so it was considered better to have and and of course that gets passed on to the students then um that differentiation this is, this is like this third third world you were exactly. talking about or third it, what was yeah, it the third, third culture third culture yeah, third, in between teacher way. and librarian exactly and so i um while i was secondary trained i ended up designing uh, mariah primary school library over in the eastern suburbs during that phase of my life and um how do you design a library in, <laughs> in 25 words or less no you rec it requires tables it requires floor space it requires bookshelves and it requires um a librarian and so you have to have an office space as well but yeah that's in very briefly but these days of course it's very different because um uh, computers that only come in, just come in in those days. I was days. going to say that there's lots of non-physical assets. Yes, and so uh, that was the first um, time I'd actually computerised a library as well, though I didn't do the technical bits. But No, but yeah. you're doing the designing yeah. and the planning, the yeah. curation, yes. I should imagine. Yes. So, um, so from that... Um, radical you know with a sense that librarians and teacher librarians had a really important central role in education and we were moving into that phase of education which was all about students having to research from from kindergarten upwards and um, that has had an amazing impact on how education is delivered in schools in Australia in comparison to other countries and so my experience with France and Switzerland I could make those comparisons. Um, could I guess yeah. that it's a lot of um, student-centred or student-driven research rather than just transfer well, of knowledge? Well it was the era of or... the project. I like projects <laughs> I guess. I well can... maybe you came through the project I era. I probably did. <laughs> I didn't know it. <laughs> Very empowering, more, as I remember. Uh, yes, and and more and uh, tragically, more emphasis was given to projects than to grammar. And oh, so, I did. I missed out on the grammar. <laughs> I yeah, when I was conscious of that in later years. And of course, that's playing out in educational repercussions these days, where a lot of um, teachers don't have those underpinnings of parsing. I don't and even know what that means. Yeah, exactly. There, I rest my case. Can you give us... <laughs> what does it mean, just quickly? It means where you analyse a sentence into its um, parts of speech. Oh, right, components. So what's... what's a noun. What's a noun, yeah. a verb, an adjective, a pronoun, um, what was the a definite article. Yeah, well, I... these things are critical to actually knowing how... Um, a sentence, a, a is sentence and then a paragraph and but then an essay and everything like well, this. Why this was, the, what was the what was the positive that why didn't they want that the the, the powers oh, the the alternative was this push for creative writing and creative writing was seen that if you can if you can write you don't need to have these technical aspects but there's there's a, a gap in the knowledge if you don't understand how the role of an adjective influences and where the adjective should go. Particularly, you know, for, that's just an example. So 
part of my thinking, of course, as, as I've gone through my PhD, has been through an uh, Aboriginal lens. What's the role of nouns in contrast to verbs? And aren't we all gerunds? And gerunds, of course, have got the ing on the end, and they're noun verbs. And in fact, as living entities, isn't that make, what we are? <laughs> can you give us an example? Oh, being. Being. Okay, to be. To be. A, and a being is a noun normally, yeah. but when we are being, we are. There's an agency in there. The ing adds agency. It adds action. It adds. And that's what a verb is, isn't it? A verb is a doing word. Mm. A word is an a verb is an active word. So a being is not just a noun. It All is right. a noun with agency. It's a noun with anyway. I like that a lot. <laughs> I, well, this we is we all can new. do another podcast on that. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, so let's get so, back to yes. your academic so pursuits. Was, that was that was that's your foundation. BA dip ed, right? Yep. And then. Um, of course, the overseas experience. I wrote a novel while I was there um, because I had negotiated my way with my husband that if I was going to give up my career, which I felt I was doing because I was in a really great space. Hello, beautiful birds. Aren't yeah, you they're gorgeous? beautiful, aren't they? They're rosellas. rosellas. So um, I felt that. If I was going to give up my career, I had to do something with my life that rather than sit at home and be a housewife. And so I um, wrote a novel, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. And what was what and was the, your novel about? It was historical fiction, and it was what we call faction back in the day. But um, it doesn't have a real uh, positive <laughs> no, ring to no. it. Faction. Yeah, but um, it was the fictional memoir, it was a memoir of um, the life of Mary Broad, better known as Mary Bryant, and she was the first uh, female, well she was the first convict to actually, with her husband William Bryant and children and seven other convicts escaped successfully from, Botany, uh, from Port Jackson. Um, so in you, 1793. So I wrote her fictional memoir. So you'd have to look up the historical information, like the, the kind of yeah, facts well, it, yeah. or the, the kind of so references. So again, this came from this sense so that I was reading um, The Fatal Shore at the time overseas and I came across this paragraph about this female convict who had escaped. And it was simply a paragraph called and about Mary Bryant. And I went, well, how come I don't know about that? And that, again, this question of why has my education not covered this fact that there was this successful escape? I like this relentless uh, pursuit of learning. Uh, learning. And that comes from, anyway, we'll get back to that journey at, um, later. But, um, so I'm, I'm kind of keen to hear about your more recent, um, yeah. you know, academic pursuits and research. Hmm. So I wrote the novel and, and then I, having done that, I had gone through how to sell it and I didn't like that phase. I loved the writing, I loved the imagination, I loved the journeying across time where I could have this identity as Mary in order to write in Well, you have person. to interpret, I would imagine, the uh, historical facts into a very personable, well, like from her perspective. So the novel is called The Sarsaparilla Souvenir. It's available on Ex Libris. Oh, yes. Is that Slight available plug. for purchase? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a talk show. With plug. <laughs> and um And it was about um, that process of writing where you actually... Um, can write through such a journey and and be this other identity for Oof. eight hours a day. The bird just flew right over. Us, yeah. yeah. So anyway, and that then set me up then, and I didn't like the selling side of it. Um, I just enjoyed that imaginative, imaginative side, and so 
then I thought, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Good, good question, yes. Yes, and, um, and I thought, well, am I going to keep writing, which I did for a while, but then I had this silly notion that, oh, maybe I could do a master's degree and I could write academically in the morning and imaginatively in the afternoon. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> so the fiction writing um, was put aside and has been put aside ever since. And I moved into this academic space, which was about looking into what are third culture kids and international education, which my children were going through at the time. And so from Monash University, based in Geneva, I began the um, master's degree by distance learning. And that was a whole journey in itself. And it was, I hadn't finished that when we came back to Australia. So then with the, with the moving back here, finding out about an Aboriginal heritage, finished the masters, what are, and what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Question arising again, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do a doctorate. I'm going to meet my own community and see what happens. So I got in touch with community. I told them I knew nothing and that I had just found out this piece of information. Um, and they were so welcoming, Auntie Sandra and Terry Lee. Um, they said, that's everybody's story because we've all had to hide our identities for several generations because if you were white looking, you would have been stolen and um, you would have been taken into institutions. And I'm still to find out whether that happened to my grandmother or not. But in any case, um, through joining in with community, um, I met several women and um, got to know people. And I, it was there that I met Dr. Neil Harrison, or Associate Professor now, Neil Harrison, who um, I spoke to him and I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing a doctorate. And he said to me, um, can you write? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hello, can I write? <laughs> I he can said, string a verb and an adjective <laughs> and a noun together. And I said, uh, yeah, I can write. And I told him, you know, what I'd done. And he said, yeah, come and see me, you know. So through discussions, um, I said that, yeah, I really thought that I would like to um, do a doctorate within Darug world and knowledge. Da what's Darug? Darug? Darug. Darug uh, as a word. Well, it's, it's you mentioned actually, that a few times. Yeah, well, Darug are the custodians of the majority of the Sydney Basin. Okay, um, and that goes from Hawkesbury River uh, in the north. Um, along around to the Colo River in the west. You go along the Colo River up to um, the Blue Mountains ridgeline <coughs> to Blackheath. You come down the ridgeline, you hit the, what's called the Nepean now. And um, around to the um, George's River area and then back around to Botany Bay and back to the ocean. So you're, you, you're embarking on... How long ago was this study kind of... Started. You know, started, just approximately. The PhD yeah. began on the 11th of the 12th, 2013. 11-12-13. Uh-huh. So I did started it on that day. Um, and you're not approaching, you're, you're, you're not approaching it like, oh, you're an anthropologist studying a, a group of people. You're, you're kind of um, finding out about your own identity in a, in a lot of ways uh, through that through that through the process and, of research and of course isn't that how we live our lives anyway that we um, um, we take that journey and as we go and have different experiences in life we're learning about ourselves in that process and so it wasn't oh the research and then me it was intertwined and that is a very Aboriginal way of um, engaging 
um, with country and um, and living experience. So um, yes, the PhD began. There's Kookaburra, and one of the important things in the PhD was that the we did it through storying, the women's storying, and we didn't use English names. We used our connections to country. So we had seven, it just turned out, we had seven women involved with me as researcher participant. And we had Kookaburra, we had Wagtail, we had Crow, we had Ringtail Possum, Bushytail Possum, Bellbird, which was me down at the, um, um, Bellbird as researcher participant, and then Sandstone down at the beach. So without further um, need, we simply focused and talked and spoke through our other than human identities. And that was the beginning. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we have all these birds and other entities, I suppose, to represent the, essentially your research um, participants. And so already it seems as though there's a, um, an unconventional approach to some of this research. And I mean, even us now sitting here, we're in the middle of um, bushland and it, this is all these birds. <laughs> They're a significant part of this experience and a a significant part of your research. Absolutely. And so, can you you, talk us through some of the, like some of your approaches or some of your methods maybe? Hmm. So, um, first up, um, it was unconventional to not start with a research question. So, is, that what, is that what people that do PhDs... Yeah, most often, um, you start with wanting to find something out. Whereas you started specific. with... I started with the women's stories, and I, I only put two frames around what they, were go- what they could talk about, um, as opposed to a highly constructed interview or anything like that. And so those two um, points were... One, that what they talked about was done in situ, in the place of their storying, and that their storying be part, be about a place and why that place was significant in Aboriginal Darug world. And then um, having established that their storying was, was going to be framed in, in place and the importance of a particular place, um, then that the, they understood that the knowledges that came out of the thesis would be go back to community. So they had to know that their audience, their first most important audience was Darry community. And so having said that, they could talk about whatever they liked and that was their decision across a timetable that um, was more flexible perhaps than might be because I was doing it part-time at that time. So, um, so we, we, some of the places on Daragnura that were covered was, um, we... Daragnura. Oh, sorry, Darag country, Nura. Nura. So Darag is the language, Darag language term for yam, which was the staple um, produce that was grown. Um, which most people don't know about. Um, and along the Hawkesbury Rivers, we know for sure that um, the Darragam was, was growing there. Um, and, then the n- and, and if you want to read more on that, read Bruce Pascoe's work, oh, um, yes. Dark Emu. Yes, because, I was only looking at that the other day. Yeah, so he talks about all sorts of mis- misunderstandings that have gone on in the past. So, so then. What was the Nura part? Nura is country. Nura is so the, the physical the, location? Well, it's or? not just physical, it's metaphysical as well. So Nura involves all the um, ancestors, 
all who are considered to still be with us and are still presences. E.g. that so, cockatoo. So up. they can be. They can be in the form of, of um, uh, animals or birds or sandstone or uh, trees. We have. It's a it's a way an approach of thinking where human beings are embedded within Nura, within country, and not above. So the Western knowledge system has always positioned um, humans as at the top of some hierarchical ladder, whereas um, um, Darug and Aboriginal ways and First Peoples generally position human beings within um, the ecology of being and of, of what, existence. What, what's First Peoples? That well, the, the, um, some people use um, Indigenous peoples. Some people use First Nations peoples, which is coming out of Canada oh, often. Okay. It's, a, it's a term for the, the, the people who originated there before colonisation anywhere around the world. So they, these are the First Nations, First Peoples. And so for Darug, we are the First Peoples of the Sydney Basin region, have been um, like other Aboriginal people on the mainland, um, representing a continuous culture uh, for more than 65,000 years, and Aboriginal people say forever. We're Here we have a bush, bush turkey. Another visitor. Yeah, the bush, the bush turkey. turkey is coming, coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so that was the, the way the project was set up, and then it evolved. So the knowledge has evolved from the storying and the, the storing and the thinking um, developed from the women's stories. And then the methodology was about um, how I was engaged between the academic world and the women's storying world. And yeah. so that came to me through this other than human lens, which was all about Goanna. And I felt like I was walking between the, the metaphorical brick walls of the university and the physical, in contrast to the, um, the places of significance that um, were spoken of by the women um, and how the landscape and place and ancestors and this um, alternative way of being within the landscape and relating to other than humans, which is is um, has been practiced for thousands and thousands of years. So, Goanna. <clears throat> now, I, I might just interrupt, just um, just to let our listeners know, your hand gestures are delightful in terms of your communicating the left and the right, or you know, your whole body is going over to well, one side. Well, we and become Goanna. So it's like the way they, a goanna walks. Yes, yes, exactly. So if anyone has ever seen goanna tracks in the sand or the dirt, um, there is no straight line. The tail is, uh, is like the, the, the winding tail of a, a snake or a river, and that has the footsteps on either side of that um, track. That line. So again, in it's there. this third culture. Exactly, and so you have the steps on the left, which I have, I position the women's storying is uh, um, those steps on the left is their storying, and then the steps on the right, which is the Western Academy and the um, ways of knowing that we've inherited from our colonising ancestors that have formed the basis of our education so well lucky you had a background in in all of that you know well, that this territory. is how one's knowledge evolves we don't just get implanted with knowledge we actually when we're when we're engaging with learning we're we're positioning any new knowledges that come within the context of our own yeah. experiences. Sounds as, a little constructivist to me. Well, it's it's not. It's evolving. No, it's no. evolving. It's an evolving because you know the knowledges that, for example, sitting here and having our relationship today 
with the uh, go uh, with the um, uh, cockatoos and the, the par parakeets. We wouldn't have known their their response to our being here if we hadn't have been here and how are we going to use that knowledge going forward so that it's evolving and that's why experiential learning is really important and why moving experiential from, learning yeah, means through experiences, experiences. so we are, like we are learning yes well, like we, on on the actual location on country, on in country. country and um through country so today, for example, it's, it, we're at the bottom of the valley of the Lane Cove National it's Park. It's a bit chilly down here, isn't it? And it is. And so the, but it's also moist. And so you, mm. you, you sort of are a little bit cold and, and you can feel the um, um, sun just trying I'm, to get through. I'm getting a little more, more sun yeah, than you, unfortunately. <laughs> so, but, but the smell of the eucalyptus, you know? We're, we're in the heart of this eucalyptus country and that's healing. Eucalyptus is a really healing smell and perfume. So when we do welcomes to country and we do um, burning, we, we are absorbing that eucalyptus through, through our being and we're healed spiritually. These are some of the knowledges that we gain as we engage with country in country as opposed to over and dominating country which is the western colonized approach so so how did you start to is the word quantify you know how do you how do you start to engage and experience this sort of territory but then ultimately you you would have academic requirements and protocols and hoops to jump let's go and walking so how, how did you kind of um get through all of how long did it take your study well because i did two years part-time it took longer so and because i started when i did I was on the very last day that the system changed from being a, a four-year PhD journey to a to a three-year PhD. So what did that mean? Well, um, today people who start PhDs they have um, no. But I mean, for you though, did you have to get a wriggle on, or did you? No, of... I had more room. I had oh, more right. wriggle room. Yeah, right. Okay. And so I could better engage with the women to fit their timetables because they're all working and everything like this. So yeah, how did they go with? Like, I guess well, you, you were a conduit of sorts by the sound of it for them. Like well, it's 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 a journey, you know, of relationships, and that's where relational. Um, your experiences in those relationships are, are really um, evolve and that's why the knowledge is evolved and they're not constructed so um, the um, the importance of um, <laughs> sorry to have bombarded you by showing you how much time we've got left in this 15 minute chunk no, if you can gather your thoughts. Oh, there's an ant. I was... <laughs> Look. So, oh. What is a spider? Can we, can we stop? No, no, we'll just keep <laughs> all going. Right. It's all right. Okay. So, um, I was going to say... Oh, God, what was I going to say? We, we, it was lots of go on a walking and lots of, you yeah. know, you, you've kind of... Oh, I know what I was going to say. And yep. so, that journey from the PhD in, um, actually once the thesis was accepted it led to um a, another step in the journey which was about the um the development of a unit based on um, custodians perspectives so the first people of any country are the custodians their obligation to country it's not you that you own country you are obliged to care for country through an aboriginal um uh, perspective and so caring for country is how we um, heal ourselves through through that reciprocal um, relationship with Mother Earth so um, caring for country can be physically as we can see here there's millions of weeds that, oh, so like that pulling weeds out picking up rubbish yeah, just kind of that kind of thing physical is one way physical but caring for country is is respecting nature and respecting our place within nature and in that process of being with 
Mother Earth, we, um, we actually can balance ourselves emotionally and spiritually. So um, that means that um, Mother Earth is able to give back to us. So one of the findings that came out of the PhD and which has been carried forward into um, this new study, um, new unit. So, so just work. to clarify, you, that's where I met you, where you yeah, kind I of... Yeah, I was um, developing that unit. But your PhD hadn't quite finished, but mm. it, was, it was almost there. But then you essentially were interpreting invited. that, invited to develop that as an educational course. Yes, that's right. Of whatever weeks, 12 weeks or whatever it is, 13 weeks, that to actually disseminate this sort of information, the findings of your research which is I would imagine really really exciting and profound it is it is especially because we when we when country is a city such as Sydney we need to all be caring for country whether we're Aboriginal or wherever we're from and how do we care for country and this was the knowledge that came out was that um, caring for country um, comes from a sense of belonging, a belonging to place. And that is the journey of, of, of a life, is how do we form our sense of belonging. So when we, have a, when we have a sense of belonging, it's because we have connection. So when we come into country like here at Brown's Waterhole, if, the more we're here, the more we have a sense of its influence on us. You know, we have a sense of connection to it. And that sense of connection then um, means that we care more for it. So if they were going to bulldoze this, we would be upset because we've got a, a memory of this place that is so beautiful and engaging. And so that sense of caring comes and through connecting. Through connecting, we develop caring. And it's the same, we can't individually um, all care for everything. So we form communities and community, a strong community of caring and connecting means that we can develop families that have a strong caring and connecting and a sense of belonging. So caring for country enables country to care for us. We can grow strong communities. Strong communities grow strong families. Strong families bring up children who have a strong sense of caring, connecting and belonging. And that is a healing and a sustainable way for the future. And it's that sense of caring for the future, for not just human beings, but for the, all the diversities all the other than humans, the more than humans, and together we become more than human. Didgeridoo. Thank you. In this episode, I chatted with Joanne Ray, a teacher librarian, author, researcher, and Darug community member. You can find out more information about this episode including links to Joe's thesis and publications in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.